Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan. And work worry-free wherever you please. Did you know that whenever you use a website, you give them permission to track what you do online? If you keep the tab open, they can see what you do and create a digital footprint of you. Well, with Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you never have to worry about downloading any risky files, but all of your web browsing will be protected, guaranteeing that you can search freely without leaving any digital footprint, and guaranteeing that you can't be tracked online. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today, and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all of my audiobooks after publication for five euros. It is one of the easiest ways to support me in turning this not just from my hobby, but into my full-time job. Let's get started. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Chapter 23 The Revelation of the Scarlet Letter The eloquent voice on which the souls of the listening audience had been borne aloft as on the swelling waves of the sea, at length, came to a pause. There was a momentary silence, profound as what should follow the utterance of oracles. Then ensued a murmur and half-hushed tumult, as if the auditors, released from the high spell that had transported them into the region of another's mind, were returning into themselves, with all their awe and wonder still heavy on them. In a moment more, the crowd began to gush forth from the doors of the church. Now that there was an end, they needed another breath, more fit to support the gross and earthly life into which they relapsed, than the atmosphere which the preacher had converted into words of flame and had burdened with the rich fragrance of his thought. In the open air, their rapture broke into speech. The street and the marketplace absolutely babbled from side to side with applauses of the minister. His hearers could not rest till they had told one another of what each knew better than he could tell or hear. According to their united testimony, never had a man spoken so wise, so high, and so holy spirit as he that spake this day, nor had inspiration ever breathed through mortal lips more evidently than it did through his. Its influence could be seen, as it were, descending upon him, and possessing him, and continually lifting him out of the written discourse that lay before him, and filling him with ideas that must have been as marvellous to himself as to his audience. His subject, it appeared, had been the relation between the deity and the communities of mankind, with a special reference to the New England which they were here planting in the wilderness. And, as he drew toward the close, a spirit as of prophecy had come upon him, constraining him to its purpose as mightily as the old prophets of Israel were constrained, only with its difference that, whereas the Jewish seers had denounced judgments and ruin on their country, it was his mission to foretell a high and glorious destiny 
for the newly gathered people of the Lord. But throughout it all, and through the whole discourse, there had been a certain deep, sad undertone of pathos, which could not be interpreted otherwise than as the natural regret of one soon to pass away. Yes, their minister, whom they so loved, and who so loved them all that he could not depart heavenward without a sigh, had the foreboding of untimely death upon him, and would soon leave them in their tears. This idea of his transitory stay on earth gave the last emphasis to the effect which the preacher had produced. It was as if an angel, in his passage to the skies, had shaken his bright wings over the people for an instant, at once a shadow and a splendour, and had shed down a shower of golden truths upon them. Thus, there had come to the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale, as to most men in their various spheres, though seldom recognised until they see it far behind them, an epoch of life more brilliant and full of triumph than any previous one, or than any which could hereafter be. He stood, at this moment, on the very proudest eminence of superiority, to which the gifts of intellect, rich law, prevailing eloquence, and reputation of whitest sanctity could not exalt the clergyman in New England's earliest days, when the professional character was of itself a lofty pedestal. Such was the position which the minister occupied as he bowed his head forward on the cushions of the pulpit at the close of his election sermon. Meanwhile, Hester Prynne was standing beside the scaffold of the pillory, with the scarlet letter still burning on her breast. Now was heard again the clangour of music and measured tramp of the military escort issuing from the church door. The procession was to be marshalled thence to the town hall, where a solemn banquet would complete the ceremonies of the day. Once more, therefore, a train of venerable and majestic fathers was seen moving through the broad pathway of the people, who drew back, reverently, on either side, as the governor and his magistrates, the old and wise men, the holy ministers, and all that were eminent and renowned, advanced into the midst of them. When they were fairly in the marketplace, their procession was greeted by a shout. This, though doubtless it might acquire additional force and volume from the childlike loyalty which the age awarded to its rulers, was felt to be an irresistible outburst of enthusiasm, kindled in the auditors by that high strain of eloquence which was yet reverberating in their ears. Each felt the impulse in himself, and, in the same breath, caught it from his neighbour. Within the church it had hardly been kept down. Beneath the sky it peeled upwards to the zenith. There were human beings enough, and enough of highly wrought and symphonious feeling to produce that more impressive sound than the organ tones of the blast, or the thunder, or the roar of the sea, even that mighty swell of voices blended into one great voice by the universal impulse which makes likewise one vast heart out of many. Never, from the soil of New England, had gone up such a shout. Never, on New England soil, had stood the man, so honoured by his mortal brethren as the preacher. How fared it with him, then? Were there not the brilliant particles of a halo in the air about his head? So etherealised by the spirits as he was, and so apothesized by the worshipping admirers, did his footsteps in the procession really tread upon the dust of the earth. As the ranks of the military men and civil fathers moved onwards, all eyes were turned towards the point where the minister was seen to approach among them. The shout died into a murmur, as one portion of the crowd after another obtained a glimpse of him. 
How feeble and pale he looked amid all his triumph. The energy, or say, rather, the inspiration which had held him up until he should have delivered the sacred message that brought his own strength along with it from the heaven, was withdrawn now that it had so faithfully performed its office. The glow which they had just before beheld burning on his cheek was extinguished, like a name that sinks down hopelessly among the late decaying embers. It seemed hardly the face of a man alive with such a death-like hue. It was hardly a man with life in him that tottered on his path so nervously, yet tottered and did not fall. One of his clerical brethren, it was the Venerable John Wilson, observing the state in which Mr. Dimmesdale was left by the retiring wave of intellect and sensibility, stepped forward hastily to offer his support. The minister, tremulously, but decidedly, repelled the old man's arm. He still walked onward, if that moment could be so described, which rather resembled the wavering effort of an infant, with its mother's arms in view, outstretched to tempt him forward. And now, almost imperceptible as were the latter steps of his progress, he had come opposite the well-remembered and well-weathered darkened scaffold, where, long since, with all that dreary lapse of their time between, Hester Prynne had encountered the world's ignominious stare. There stood Hester, holding little Pearl by the hand, and there was the scarlet letter on her breast. The minister here made a pause, although the music still played the stately and rejoicing march to which the procession moved. It summoned him onward, onward to the festival. But here he made a pause. Bellingham, for the last few moments, had kept an anxious eye upon him. He now left his own place in the procession and advanced to give assistance, judging from Mr. Dimmerdale's aspect that he must otherwise inevitably fall. But there was something in the latter's expression that warned back the magistrate, although a man not readily obeying the vague imitations that pass from one spirit to another. The crowd, meanwhile, looked on with awe and wonder. This earthly faintness was, in their view, only another phase of the minister's celestial strength. Nor would it have seemed a miracle too high to be wrought for one so holy had he ascended before their eyes, waxing dimmer and brighter, and fading at last into the light of heaven. He turned towards the scaffold and stretched forth his arms. Hester, said he, come hither. Come, my little pearl. It was a ghastly look with which he regarded them, but there was something at once tender and strangely triumphant in it. The child, with the bird-like motion, which was one of her characteristics, flew to him and clasped her arms about his knees. Hester Prynne, slowly, as if impelled by inevitable fate and against her strongest will, likewise drew near, but paused before she reached him. At this instant, old Roger Chillingworth thrust himself through the crowd, or perhaps, so dark, disturbed, and evil was his look, he rose up out of some nether region to snatch back his victim from what he sought to do. Be that as it might, the old man rushed forward and caught the minister by the arm. Madman, hold! What is your purpose? whispered he. Wave back that woman. Cast off this child. All shall be well. Do not blacken your fame and perish in dishonour. I can yet save you. Would you bring infamy on your sacred profession? Ah, tempter, methinks thou art too late, answered the minister, encountering his eye fearfully but firmly. 
Thy power is not what it was. With God's help, I shall escape thee now. He again extended his hand to the woman of the scarlet letter. Hester Prynne, cried he with a piercing eagerness. In the name of him, so terrible, so merciful, who gives me grace this last moment to do what? For my own heavy sin and miserable agony, I withheld myself from doing seven years ago. Come hither, now, and twine thy strength about me. Thy strength, Hester, but let it be guided by the will which God hath granted me. This wretched and wronged old man is opposing it with all his might, with all his own might, and the fiends. Come, Hester, come, support me up yonder scaffold. The crowd was in a tumult. The men of rank and dignity, who stood more immediately around the clergyman, were so taken by surprise and so perplexed as to the purport of what they saw, unable to receive the explanation which most readily presented itself, or to imagine any other, that they remained silent and inactive spectators of the judgment which Providence seemed about to work. They beheld the minister, leaning on Hester's shoulder and supported by her arm around him, approach the scaffold and ascend its steps, while still the little hand of the sin-born child was clasped in his. Old Roger Chillingworth followed, as one intimately connected with the drama of guilt and sorrow in which they had all been actors, and well entitled, therefore, to be present at its closing scene. Hadst thou sought the whole earth over, said he, looking darkly at the clergyman, there was no one place so secret, no high place nor lowly place, where thou couldst have escaped me, save this very scaffold. Thanks be to him who led me hither, answered the minister. He trembled, and turned to Hester with an expression of doubt and anxiety in his eyes, not the less evidently betrayed that there was a feeble smile upon his lips. Is not this better, murmured he, than what we dreamed of in the forest? I know not, I know not, she hurriedly replied. Better? Yea, so we may both die? A little pearl die with us? For thee and pearl, be it as God shall order, said the minister, and God is merciful. Let me now do the will which he hath made plain before my sight. For Hester, I am a dying man, and so let me make haste to take my shame upon me. Partly supported by Hester Prynne, and holding one hand of little pearls, the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale turned to the dignified and venerable rulers, to the holy ministers who were his brethren, to the people whose great heart was thoroughly appalled, yet overflowing with tearful sympathy, as knowing that some deep life matter, which, if full of sin, was full of anguish and repentance likewise, was now to be laid open to them. The sun, but a little past its meridian, shone down upon the clergyman, and gave a distinctness to his figure as he stood out from all the earth to put his plea of guilt into the bar of eternal justice. People of New England, cried he, with a voice that rose over them, high, solemn, and majestic, yet had always a tremor through it, and sometimes a shriek, struggling up out of a fathomless depth of remorse and woe. Ye that have so loved me, 
ye that deemed me holy. Behold me here, the one sinner of the world. At last, at last, I stand upon the spot where, seven years since, I should have stood here with this woman, whose arm, more than the little strength wherewith I have crept hitherward, sustains me at this dreadful moment from groveling down upon my face. Lo, the scarlet letter which Hester wears, ye have all shuddered at it. Wherever her walk hath been, wherever so miserably burdened she may have hoped to find repose, it hath cast a lurid gleam of awe and horrible repugnance about her. But there stood one in the midst of you, at whose brand of sin and infamy ye had not shuddered. It seemed, at this point, as if the minister must leave the remainder of his secret undisclosed. But he fought back the bodily weakness, and, still more, the faintness of heart that was striving for the mastery within him. He threw off all assistance, and stepped passionately forward a pace before the woman and the child. It was on him, he continued, with a kind of fierceness, so determined was he to speak out the whole. God's eye beheld it. The angels were forever pointing at it. The devil knew it well, and fretted it continually with the touch of his burning finger. But he hid it cunningly from men, and walked among you with the mien of a spirit mournful, because so pure in a world of sin, and sad, because he missed his heavenly kindred. Now, at the death hour, he stands up before you. He bids you look again at Hester's scarlet letter. He tells you that, with all its mysterious horror, it is but the shadow of what he bears on his own breast, and that this, his own red stigma, is no more than the type of what has seared his innermost heart. Stand any here that question God's judgment on a sinner? Behold, behold, a dreadful witness of it. With a convulsive motion, he tore away the ministerial brand from before his breast. It was revealed, but it were irreverent to describe that revelation. For an instant, the gaze of the horror-stricken multitude was concentrated on the ghastly miracle, while the minister stood with a flush of triumph on his face, as one who, in the crisis of acutest pain, had won a victory. Then, down he sank upon the scaffold. Hester partly raised him, and supported his head against her bosom. Old Roger Chillingworth knelt down beside him, with a blank, dull countenance, of which the life seemed to have departed. Thou hast escaped me, he repeated more than once. Thou hast escaped me. May God forgive thee, sold the minister. Thou too hast deeply sinned. He withdrew his dying eyes from the old man, and fixed them on the woman and the child. My little pearl, said he, feebly, and there was a sweet and gentle smile over his face, as of a spirit sinking into a deep repose. Nay, now that the burden was removed, it seemed almost as if he would be sportive with the child. Dear little pearl, wilt thou kiss me now? Thou wouldst not yonder in the forest. 
but now thou wilt. Pearl kissed his lips. A spell was broken. The great scene of grief in which the wild infant bore a part had developed all her sympathies. And as her tears fell upon her father's cheek, they were the pledge that she would grow up amid human joy and sorrow, nor forever do battle with the world, but be a woman in it. Towards her mother, too, Pearl's errand as a messenger of anguish was fulfilled. Hester, said the clergyman, farewell. Shall we not meet again? whispered she, bending her face down close to his. Shall we not spend our immortal life together? Surely, surely we have ransomed one another with all this woe. Thou lookest afar into eternity with those bright dying eyes, and tell me what thou seest. Hush, Hester, hush, said he, with tremulous solemnity. The law we broke, the sin here so awfully revealed. Let these alone be in thy thoughts. I fear it may be that when we forgot our God, when we violated our reverence each for the other's soul, it was thenceforth vain to hope that we could meet hereafter in an everlasting and pure reunion. God knows, and he is merciful. He hath proved his mercy most of all in my affliction. By giving me this burning torture to bear upon my breast, by sending yonder dark and terrible old man to keep the torture always at red heat, by bringing me hither to die this death of triumph ignominy before the people. Had either of these agonies been wanting, I had been lost forever. Praised be his name, his will be done. Farewell. That final word came forth with the minister's expiring breath. The multitude, silenced till then, broke out in a strange, deep voice of awe and wonder, which could not yet find utterance, save in this murmur that rolled so heavily after the departed spirit. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz, and if you really enjoyed, do subscribe. The conclusion is to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It is the easiest way to help get this in front of as many people as possible, and reading your reviews really, really makes my day. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.